The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. It is our first live edition in 2017. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean, and President of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law and... Kern County College in of Law. Sub, Are we rolling with that? We're getting closer. Every month we get closer. So that drum roll is it's still it's going. It's getting bigger and bigger. But it, it is. Hey, uh, Happy New Year, Mitch. I didn't happy get a New Year to, to you, Stephen. To wish you that formally. We ran a couple of replays. Uh, Encores. Encore Best programs. Best ofs. That's right. That's right. That was good. So um, let's start with a little bit of a loop back and, and bring up some of the topics that we've already reached in the past. Well, we spent a couple of shows talking about the process of electing president of the United States. Of course, we had a popular vote back in November. But uh, for the first time in, as we know, several hundred years, it turned out that that popular vote had very little to do with the actual election by about 2.8 million. Uh, but there was an electoral college that we explained to everyone is the actual way that we elect our president. That is right. And that loop got closed this past Friday when the electoral college which is the uh, reported its votes to a joint session of Congress that was uh, seen. It was uh, it, the in charge of that was Joe Biden, Vice President, President of the Senate, officiated was the word That's I was looking right. for, officiated. And although there were some hijinks by those who wanted to get some publicity on that, the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day. They certified the electoral college. It college's was certified. Vote. The gavel landed, and we officially have, have a president Donald Trump elect. Is president elect, and on January twentieth, he will be issued the oath of office and will be the president of the United States. That's right. You so know, it all worked. I know, and you know, it's I. I know sometimes it's wrong to toot your own horn, but I do have to say, Mitch, that we talked about the electoral college once, even before the election, and then we got into it again during the election, and now we have closure on it. So we actually went from left to right, start to finish on that topic. We did. And what I'll leave that po- leave on that point is that there's no question that after this election, we have not heard the last of discussion of whether or not the Electoral College 
as it's currently configured, is the way we want to elect the president. I think that's right. And in tracking a lot of the commentary, Mitch, I would not be surprised if there would be a lot of fervent uh, talk about bringing back just the popular vote. Well, there's, there's that. And then there's the interim step, which would be even less uh, difficult to impose, which is every state, just a quick reminder of what we talked about on our prior show was that every state gets to determine how it allocates its electors so you don't need to do away with the electoral college completely that's right in order to have the process be more reflective of the popular vote would, of each state it could remain intact but the composition you would could be proportionately assign electors based on popular vote of each state and that would then mean that the electoral college would more closely reflect popular vote without doing away with the process as a whole. That's right. And I think that conversation is one we will see in the near future. All right. Well, we may have an opportunity to bring it back up. So uh, another topic, Mitch, that we, we talked about in preparation for today, and it relates to firearms, Second Amendment guns. Well, that's, of course, been one of our most popular topics over the past several years that we've had this show. Anytime we talk about the Second Amendment, uh, it gets everybody's attention. Obviously, uh, by the time you've heard this show, you'll know that there was in the, in the immediate recent past here uh, another shooting at a public venue. In this case, it was the airport in Florida. And we have an individual who evidently boarded an airplane in Alaska, uh, checked his gun into uh, the, as luggage, retrieved it from the luggage carousel in Florida, flew from Alaska to Florida, and allegedly, as the news is saying, uh, killed five and wounded eight or nine people. And let's, let's work through this, Mitch, because I think it is really interesting. Obviously, a tragic case, but by all accounts, it would appear as though the movement of the individual and the weapon and the ammunition was all proper in terms of its transportation, the way it was handled. The ammo was separated from the actual firearm. Uh, it went through the normal TSA scrutiny. I like you know, the way you frequently put these as a, as a prosecutor, as you say, let's check the boxes. What, were all the rules followed? Because that's the very first thing that people are going to look at is how did this happen and were there violations of the gun law? Sure. And there's, clearly shooting someone is illegal. And the violation of the gun law. And you're exactly correct. We did a program on how the TSA regulates the transportation of firearms. And from what we can tell from the news... I gotta say, you get, you're protected by the laws you choose to enact, and the laws on traveling with firearms appear to have been followed here. You said it exactly right. We had a passenger who put his firearm in a locked container. It was apparently unloaded. The ammunition was separate. Both of those things were locked. He checked it as luggage, which you're entitled to do in the United States, and he retrieved it as luggage at the other end. That transportation, I mean, Pointing your fingers and saying, why didn't security do their job, would be terribly unfair. Yeah. There was yet, no failure of yet, security as in we this. discussed this topic, we need to cater to the idea or the question of what went wrong. Correct. Did something go wrong? That's something, what everybody's asking. Something must have gone wrong as the natural sort of reaction. So I would have like to this. say that, that as far as are we going to point the fingers at the airlines or the TSA, and, and from what we know now, the answer is no. Now... 
That doesn't say that I agree with those rules as applied. I, I'm not sure I would agree that you should be able to travel with, with guns from one jurisdiction to the other. But that's not the question that's being asked. So the question let's, is, was it legal? Let's and the unwind is, it. Yes. Let's unwind it a little bit. So let's go back. So you already set it up, and I think for the, our listeners' benefit, you started by referencing Alaska, yep. and then the shooting, of course, occurred in Florida. So the other thing that's going to come out of this story is, and it certainly appears that there is concern because this individual allegedly went into a regional office of the FBI with his weapon and reported that he believed that he was hearing voices or that he thought that the CIA was projecting voices or messages into his head. He was hearing things and he showed up at the FBI to to ask them to get the CIA to stop. All right, so that's not exactly your normal walk in off the street at an FBI office and event. It, it was not a scheduled visit. Correct. Correct. And he arrived with his semi-automatic weapon at the office. So he arrives at a field office, an yes. FBI field office. Correct. Is it in Anchorage? Uh, somewhere. I I think. Think. Okay. Yeah. So Alaska. We know it's in Alaska. It's in Alaska. And then reported that he was hearing voices. Right. And they have added some other facts. Notified him that he had a weapon with him and that he was properly permitted for it, which he was. Okay, Okay, so so there was confirmation that he was properly permitted. In Alaska, as I'm sure many people will remember, the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, was very proud to point out that as a hunting and sportsman state, that these people have permits, they're entitled to carry their weapons. And so he was in compliance with Alaska Law. Okay, so he's interviewed in the field office, Correct. the FBI field office, mm-hmm. and an agent from the FBI takes a statement from him, and I assume it has an opportunity to respond or evaluate how this individual presents, and he goes on to a, is it a 72-hour hold? Yes, evidently they were concerned enough <clears throat> that he was then, they, they took his weapon from him, turned it over to the sheriff's office, and had him sent to a uh, 72-hour hold at a local hospital in a psych ward. And that's typical in most jurisdictions. You, if someone appears to be, what, uh, I think the standard is of, of immediate dam- danger right. to themselves or others. That's right. That they can be t- held for 72 hours. Yeah, so in California, evaluated. there would be a welfare and institutions code section, right. perhaps on that, a 5150 right. hold, they call that. Right. Because you don't have to go to the court and get them, right? The, the, Police can take someone and have them delivered to the psych ward and ask that the evaluation be done. And I believe that that's what happened here. Either they gave him to the sheriff and the sheriff took him or the FBI took him. Okay. And so he was held for 72 and hours. separated from the weapons. Separated I understand from the, the sheriff's weapon. department may have actually intervened or had a correct. role in this by maintaining control over the weapon. That's correct. The end of 72 hours, he was released. And the choices then were that someone could have gone to court and said that he needed to now be held longer, but you could not hold him longer without court order. He could have voluntarily checked himself in, which he didn't choose to do. Uh, But anything other than voluntary, he or a family member would have had to go to the court and actually gone through a process. So the only thing I'd I'd like to interject briefly on that is that I think it's also accurate to say that he did not communicate any future crime or a willingness to commit a crime, nor did he actually report a crime. None that we know of. So nothing was referred to a prosecuting agency is where I'm going. So step one was the concern has been, did the TSA do their job on letting this weapon get from 
Alaska to Florida, and the answer is nothing in their rules could prohibit it. So, so if we want that not to be able to happen, we'd need to change those rules. But until we do, nothing prohibited. The second question is, can the FBI take his gun and keep it? And the answer is no. I mean, the Second Amendment and the state of Alaska and federal law said he had a proper permit. He was entitled to have this weapon. Yeah, so if we go back to Alaska and look at what may have gone wrong there... There isn't a lot of glaring evidence that anything did go wrong. He was on a 72-hour hold. He had the right to maintain the weapons. They were returned to him lawfully. Correct. And then he went on to transport them, and the scrutiny then shifts to TSA or any other agency that's responsible for safeguarding airports and the safety of public travel. And then the the third question would be when he arrived in Florida, uh, given his his apparent mental state and retrieved his weapon, the question might be, well, did he violate a Florida law at that point? Does Florida have a different law as far as his ability and to lawfully uh, have possession of that weapon when he arrived? And the answer again is no. Well, certainly they have a law against brandishing or firing a weapon. We no know that. Question about the We're use, focusing squarely upon the handling of the weapon and the, the possession movement of, of it, it through the airport. Exactly. So he goes to the carousel. How does this play out, Mitch? He goes to the carousel, retrieves the items, and I gather then has an opportunity to to Supp- load, and then he supposedly just, he then took the 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 container, the little suitcase, the locked suitcase. Uh, took it to a bathroom, and then we don't know what happened in the bathroom. What we do know is he came out of the bathroom and proceeded to allegedly start shooting people, killing five, wounding nine. So, so there's been a lot of discussion about, you said it exactly right, what went wrong. So if we want to talk about the prevention, uh, there's been a lot of discussion when we talk about the Second Amendment, and we've had your friend from San Jose. That's right, uh, Don Kilmer. Don Kilmer mm-hmm. talked to us about, uh, Lawsuits and regulations related to the handling of guns, the sale and sale and possession. But uh, one of the things I want to, and we're not going to have an answer to this now, but uh, what I want the dialogue, I think what's healthy to have the dialogue be, is that uh, one of the common themes is, well, crazy people shouldn't have weapons. Terrorists shouldn't have weapons. But the fact of the matter is we only have a couple of vehicles in the law, a couple of mechanisms in the law under which the Second Amendment allows us to restrict this. And and either it has to be statutory, where the people of a state then say, we don't want guns to be available in these set of circumstances, yeah. or the court has to step in in the cases you talked about and deem somebody mentally deficient. And if they do, then the law yeah. kicks in and okay. says you can't so now, have a gun. Now you've framed a good issue now that can, can ripen into a, a further discussion on some interesting topics. And I think you hit, hit it on the head, uh, Mitch, with the reference to if the laws aren't working, a legislative fix needs to happen. So we look at this, and I just wanted to be pretty clear, and I think it's accurate to say that if we look back at the events... This is not a case of there being rogue violations or missteps in the application of the law. Instead, as I think you said, it might highlight that there might be glaring gap areas in the law, perhaps. Well, yeah, it's, it's almost as we've flipped the, the cards here. You know, glaring gap is a judge is judgment laden language that would say that there ought to be something filled in there. The fact of the matter is we start with a very broad Second Amendment right that's argued to be 
almost unlimited to have the right to own and, and bear right. arms. All right, we're going out. We're going out on our first break. This is good because we'll, let's pick it back up on this topic about what did go wrong and, and what might have prevented this if there's a way. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go away. College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law, established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information... Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Well, 
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the recent shooting in Florida at the airport, a tragic incident indeed. And we're focusing on gun laws, a little bit of Second Amendment too, I think, Mitch, and what rules are currently in place. And we're really kind of trying to turn it inside out a little bit and evaluate what may have gone wrong and well, so the real the real question that I want to bring this back to is that we've we've got a decision as a country, if uh, from a factor of of public safety, of if we're going to uh, try to pr- prevent or be protective of these kinds of from these kinds of dangers, how do we want to approach it? And the broad, as I was about to say before the break, you know, the broad protection of the Second Amendment says that we only want the government to restrict our right to have, bear, carry, use weapons in a very narrow fashion and we see in a case here that that unlike some of the other mass shootings which there was questions as to whether the person lawfully had the weapon questions of whether they're possessing the weapon in a in a place that was allowed I mean, this one the fact of the matter is you can't look at the tsa rules and say there was a failure I don't believe you're going to find there was any problem with what the FBI did. They they did exactly what they were supposed to. They turned him over to the health professionals. They turned the weapon over to the sheriff. Alaska law gave them no vehicle from which to keep this gun from the individual or take it from the individual. Florida law would have given them nothing different. Federal law would have given them nothing different. So I think what I hope comes out of this is um, a more honest discussion of what you said. Are there gaps in the area of protection that we would like to fill because it's going to either have to be done by statute or giving a broader authority to judges. And let me just highlight this, Mitch. When I reference gaps in laws, I didn't mean to say that I think we should chip away at the Second Amendment. That's certainly not my position. I I think I'm in lockstep with you on the mental health issue and who should have access to firearms without question. So as I look at this case, I actually think something went wrong in the great state of Alaska and that maybe more intervention should have occurred there. Now, would that intervention have included violating the Second Amendment? We'd be here all night to talk about that. But this issue of mental health, and I just wanted to share this. Uh, In California, we have several criminal statutes that if, if an individual suffers a conviction, they can't own or possess firearms. And if they want the firearms back after the successful completion of probation, they need to petition to get them back. So now courts involved. And it means going to court. Right. So there is adjudication. We've talked about this before, yep. too. And in case of mental health, there's an adjudication process in which guns could either be taken or you might have to petition to get them back if you've actually been incarcerated. That's right. Or, or uh, sent to a mentalist. That's right. And I'm sharing that now, Mitch, because you had cited individual or past cases. And I think you're right to do that, because I think what will come from this Florida case is that it will be placed uh, on the long line of tragic cases. And many of them have involved rich histories of mental disorders uh, by the by the gun toters and the shooters. There's no doubt about that. This case I'm not sure what the full mental picture is. That's right. We don't have that data yet, but I think that's going to be part of what we all need to consider. And and 
and it gets really complicated. You know, as, as you and I have talked in the in, in the past, I'm not in a fan, or I guess the way I've said it in the past, I would draw the line on who gets to have guns where in a different part of the spectrum than I suspect you would or some of those who are more pro-guns. I'm from Texas, a hunting state. I have no problem with the rightful ownership of weapons. I am I have great problems with semi-automatics and non-hunting weapons being in such uh, with such little control under the law. Um, so, but that I, but that's just a matter of of where we draw the line. Um, and this is going to bring that back up. I think the line it shows that the line needs to be reevaluated again. And, and I don't think this will be the last time we're talking about this on this show. No, it'll be really interesting. And, and I think you hit it also in in the lead of the of the story, Mitch. And that is that a lot of scrutiny is going to be lead, is going to be placed or has already been placed on the FBI, right? In this that's, case, that's right, because they were they were involved. But I I got to tell you, I don't see anything in this that was the FBI's issue. Here's the irony: if we step back, uh, you know, the FBI we we've had the FBI as a topic on this show uh, fairly recently in a discussion of. Uh, FBI Director Comey's activities of when should the FBI step in and That's do right. certain things right. or not, right? Yep. And so on one hand, you have uh, a group of folks say, you know, the FBI should stay out of things. You know, they should stick to what they're supposed to do. And, and in this case, they stepped way across the line and became politicized. And now I think... Some of those same people are going to be saying, the FBI should have been all over this. They should have stepped in and taken his weapons. Yeah. They had him in, they had him in custody, essentially. Yeah. 17, <laughs> 72 hours wasn't enough, yeah. or there should have been more efforts taken to separate the individual from the, the weapon. But I think I'll wrap my piece of this up as saying that, you know, it's not about finger pointing in this case. This is not finger pointing at the FBI or the sheriff or the TSA. Uh, this is finger pointing at ourself to decide what, if any, additional restrictions we want to put in our in our right to have and use weapons? Yeah, I think a, that's right. And that's it. Just comes down to that, and that's where this conversation's got to go. That's right. All right. To be so, continued. So, so new year, 2017. New year, new laws. There are new years and new laws, and let's let's just pick up a couple just that fit with this. Ironically, we do have a new California law relating to guns. And we won't go with, through all the details of it, but uh, California is restricting by statute the uh, type of guns you can have. They're high-capacity weapons. They're also restricting weapons that have, I think it's called a magic button, which allows you to do a quick change of high-capacity magazines. Uh, so on one hand, you have one state that is taking some steps towards restricting those type of weapons. Uh, at the very same time, we have another state, I think it was not Missouri, that's going 180 degrees the other direction. Yeah, it's amazing. If you pull from state to state, there's so much diversity in the laws. It's so amazing. we have Missouri in which gun owners are no longer required to have a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Yeah. So we have relaxing of the laws and uh, more vigorous laws all across, you know, which leads me to this issue. Um, knowledge of the law is important, right? Mistake of law is not a defense. And I thought I'd get that out because That's we also exactly have right. 
mobile phone laws in California that are important. I'm looking over at your new iWatch. Oh, there. yeah, yeah. I Remember gave you a, brief now, a year ago. I know. So you had to trump me and get a one with more Series two. bells and whistles. Nice it's, job. It's here, but I do, I do have it muted. So but it's a, new, it's a new piece of distraction. It you know, is a new piece of distraction. But this piece of distraction would comply with the California law. Because, you know, the California law is a hands-free. Well, this, by definition, is on my wrist. That's good. It is hands-free. All right. I, it, but we've talked many times about the fact that the law doesn't always keep up with technology. Your point of the distraction is well taken. Yeah, isn't it true when you first got that, weren't you just um, amazed, maybe even, excuse the pun, alarmed by what it can do? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Well, I can talk through it. I mean, this is like the old Dick Tracy watch. It is. I can talk on it. I can get my email on it. I mean, it will do virtually everything that my phone will do. So, so the new California yeah, law, new Cal law says, So what we've got, here's the way I'm breaking it down. Right, and right. I'm not going to get into the technicalities of it. Right. But, but tell me if you agree with this. The new California law is such that the smartphone or the mobile phone will now be just a piece of the dashboard. In That's essence. correct. As long as it is a piece of the dashboard, you can continue to use it. What you can't do in California is use it for anything while it's being handheld. That's period, right. Period. End of story. You can't talk on it. You can't use your map. You can't take pictures. You can't take videotape uh, or video uh videotape you can't videotape on a phone but you can't video on it so the idea is that it should reduce the distractions to the drivers in the meantime they're one step ahead and now that distraction is strapped on my wrist yeah, yeah that's true <laughs> well and then you know the other thing that i was going to share about that is the law is such that it's now a primary offense i think we talked about that Correct. once before when this one was in its it hadn't been fully chaptered yet i don't think right but uh meaning that if law enforcement sees you using the cell phone that's the basis for being pulled over now you can do stuff. that before you had explained right, that right if if in the investigation as part of the wreck so to speak they it was observed that you'd been using the phone then they could add that on as a violation that is right but they couldn't just pull you over because they saw you on your phone before january 1 right now they can yeah and um public safety announcement uh it's pretty easy for law enforcement to tell if you're using your phone i'll just share that without giving away the store well you know we had we you had know that glow yeah <laughs> okay well the glow and and what we find is that they let's remind everyone when we first did the story on on this law that if you think they the law enforcement can't have access to go in and see what your phone was doing during the minutes and time frame in which there's the alleged violation you're kidding yourself. that is true we talked about that we it, talked about that in connection with search warrants which are required to get into most of the data on a cell phone and suffice to say it is a treasure trove of data it is so especially we, if law enforcement gets their hands on that iWatch. so we determined that they <laughs> get their hands on my but, iWatch. <laughs> It's possible. It's a vessel well, of information. Well, it is. Now, what we learned in California is the current law appears to be that they need a warrant they do. to do it. They do. But, but people shouldn't, non-lawyers shouldn't get confused by saying, oh, well, they can't get my phone without a warrant, therefore I'm safe. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if there's, if there's reasonable cause to believe that that phone has data that will be part of an investigation, they're going to get it. Sure. 
Absolutely. So, and, and so the you probable cause, just to speak yeah, generically about it, is that it's a storage device, right. and there would be probable cause, for instance, you see it in, in suspected drug dealing cases, that might right. be the storage device or mechanism by which a dealer keeps data. Well, and if they saw you weaving down the road and they pull you over, there's no apparent, you're not uh, driving while intoxicated, you're not ill, and there's a glowing phone on the passenger seat. I mean, there you have it. Mitch, you're really coming along. I like that. You've got it good. All right. So that could form the basis for the stop and be a form of distracted driving. That's right. And now they could stop and now they could then get a warrant if they needed to. Look at what the phone was doing during the time frame that they stopped you. Absolutely. And bingo, you're nailed. Absolutely. So, you know, all levity and kidding aside, the goal here is obviously public safety when we're talking about having uh, hands-free devices. That's correct. Period. Now, you can still drive down the road and load your gun. So, I mean, there's some oh, things that the, that the law hasn't caught up on. Okay. That said from a Texas native. All right. Hey, so uh, did you put tax on sugary drinks on the board? I did. Is that, that's a new law. That's interesting. Uh, you know, we've talked about it, I think, briefly once before. Uh, our senator, Bill Monning, had... Uh, attempted to get legislation passed for labeling sugar content on uh, soda. That's right. And other states have now enacted laws that are going to actually put a tax on sugary drinks. And uh, one might say, well, why, why do they get to do that? And I think one of the arguments is, and this is an interesting Connect. I mean, first of all, there's this argument that it's unhealthy, but there's a lot of things that are unhealthy that aren't taxed. Uh, but the but I can tell you from being on a local hospital board that one of the largest costs to our community is both childhood obesity and childhood diabetes. And there is no question that these sugary drinks and the volume of them being consumed by children is a factor in that. Not the only factor, but is a factor. Yeah. And we're dealing with it as a cost to society, and I think it's really interesting that some of these jurisdictions are addressing that by a tax. Yeah, and yet, you know, we've we both as lawyers, Mitch, we've heard the the retort that you can't tax for purposes of a penalty. Let's pick it up when we get back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're going out on a very short break. Please don't go away. We will be right back to continue the dialogue. considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. 
That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The President and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, and Happy New Year to everyone. We're talking about the new year and new laws, and we've talked about a few of them. We led off by talking about the topic of guns and the tragic shooting event in Florida. Uh, we're going to turn to a couple other topics. Mitch is actually uh, chuckling right now, which signals that we're now moving to the levity segment of the program. Uh, okay, and it's not because we're going to talk about marijuana, because we're going to get to that in a minute. All that's right. clearly one of the new ones. But I do have to – you had asked me about what was this new catfish law. Okay. And I, and I said you had stumped me on that. So I pulled this up. And in Illinois, it's no longer legal to catch catfish using a pitchfork, spear gun, or bow and arrow. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 just, and just for the record, <clears throat> not that this would qualify me as an expert, but I did share on our break that in Oklahoma, when I was there for a visit once, I learned about a form of catfishing called noodling where you actually use your hand to catch the catfish. And for some reason, I That's thought... still legal. It's still legal. It's legal. You can use your hand. You just cannot use a pitchfork, spear gun, or bow and arrow yeah, to that's hunt. Yeah, that's insane. To hunt. <laughs> well, uh, legend catfish. has it that fingers have been lost in the noodling method, and that's supposed to be a bad Well, that's courage, in that category so. of natural selection, if you ask me. I think so that's probably right. So, hey, there's, a, there's another story, Mitch, that caught my attention. You, I think you pulled this one up out of Illinois with uh, beauticians or cause those with... 
Yeah, another Illinois law that Illinois has got a, a number of interesting new 2017 laws. Wish they tighten up their gun laws. No, just, well, just <laughs> but, oh boy. Okay. Boy, you've what, had, had to get that out. Well, Chicago had to get that I know. Out, right? I mean, empirically. Well, their their chief of police has been on the news more than Donald Trump since the election. So there you go. All right. So what is this? What is this? Uh, in Illinois, from? moving right along, uh, in order to renew their licenses, cosmetologists are now required to get training to identify signs of domestic and sexual abuse and to be better equipped to help clients who might be victims. Wow. That is interesting. So that almost puts them in a category of mandatory reporters that's what i'm thinking about i i think you're right you know mandatory reporters we we tend to think of as school teachers and daycare workers psychologists psychologists hospital workers i mean these are folks who must report and actually to their failure to report is a violation of the law so now there's a new law in illinois adding that adding cosmetologists beauty parlor folks barbers Anybody with a cosmetologist. That license. is that's fascinating. I mean, if you think about that, they are in the business of actually looking carefully at. I'll just go with fingernails just for a moment, right? Yeah. There could be evidence of a crime in somebody's fingers. There could be. So they haven't gone as far as to make them a mandatory reporter, but they do need to be trained on identifying the signs as part of their new licensing. So I guess that's one of those cases where I mean, we'd have to look at the details yeah, of the law. This is just a summary. But where the, the first step is to get them aware of it, and then maybe they're looking at a future step of making them a mandatory reporter. Wow. So, you know, as we always talk about gun, sex, rock and roll, and marijuana. Got to get always, drugs in there. Got to get drugs right, so, in there. So marijuana so, laws have okay, changed. Okay, so what's going on? With, we, so we know what, what's recently happened in California. We do. So we've got recreational marijuana now in seven states uh, in the United States. Uh, that's California, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada have now added to uh, Arkansas, Florida, Montana, uh, adding medical marijuana. I mean, this is the, I guess we talked about this. Oh, probably earlier in the year. And the question we was, did. at which point is it a tipping point? in which we're going to see the legislative move. At the time, we were talking about it before California had passed the recreational marijuana, and we believe that just by sheer volume, California was going to be the tipping point. But I think now you can look at it and see, we're now with seven states with recreational, an additional five that have medical. Yeah, we looked at Colorado. We had Chris mm-hmm. Halser in to talk yeah. about the industry in, in Colorado. And, you know, I think, Mitch, we ought to be on the lookout for what kind of trends come from the legalization of recreational marijuana. And I just wanted to just get this out. And I truly mean, I wanted to frame this maybe as a rhetorical question, but will it or will it not come with more responsibility? I shared that recently when I was speaking to some professionals. And my hope is that it will lead to more responsibility because I think naturally about impaired driving. You know, That's I, right. I, I do a lot about of those the challenge cases. of that. And my hope is that it will come with more responsibility and that somehow marijuana will not be treated as some sort of 
casual drug that doesn't rise to the level of causing somebody to be unable to safely operate a vehicle. That's right. And I think no matter where you stand on the spectrum of the drug, what we absolutely want to remind everyone, and we did it in our prior show and we've done it a couple of other times, is none of this changes the liability of DUI. The fact that you are ingesting a legal substance, whether it's a prescription drug or recreational marijuana, does not change at all the liability. It doesn't. DUI. It doesn't. My fear was that it might change the perceptions in some yeah, way. I think that's a well-taken point. And, and I, I would not want to see that happen. You know, what's interesting in California is that the definition of a drug is embodied in our vehicle code section. And it's defined in such a way as to uh, highlight the uh, effect on the central nervous system and whether it has an effect so as to make really driving difficult or challenging or impaired. And I think sister states have similar statutes. So, Well, the other thing we talked about that is not addressed in any of these laws, but we know it's got to come down the pike, which we bridge over to labor law. And so as an employer, what are you or are you not going to be allowed to question or test as a condition of employment? And now with recreational marijuana in, we've been, we've had someone on the show before that talked about how difficult it is to test and that impairment versus unlike alcohol, which metabolizes on a regular method, uh, marijuana does not. THC uh, does not react to the same way for everybody. And so now we're going to have all these issues of labor law, of someone impaired at work. Can you sanction them? Can you send them home? Can you terminate them? Can you fail to hire them? Private sector versus government type jobs yep. or quasi-government type jobs. So I think you're exactly Independent right. Independent contractor versus contractor. Yeah. What are we, lawyers? Yeah. About, you yeah. know, I was just about to say <laughs> that. It sounds like we're talking about the Full Employment Lawyer yeah, Act yeah, here. Yeah, well, yeah. cannabis really does Ab open the absolutely. door to We also talked about the financial aspect. That's one. I don't even know how that uh, recalled our, our topic about whether banks are accepting deposits from those in the industry. Well, we know that the, what little we know is that in Colorado and in Oregon, as far as I understand, the state regulated institutions will allow uh, cannabis businesses to use the banks, but federally chartered cannot. And so you know, we have a, a new administration coming in who does not apparently intend to change the federal law and may intend to roll back kind of the don't ask, don't tell part of recreational marijuana on the federal level. So I don't I, I don't see that this has been resolved very clearly at all. Right. So again, a few state laws, potential full employment act for lawyers. Again. Uh, I think that's exactly yeah. right. See, it's a good it's a good uh, pursuit. <laughs> law school is a good thing, right? That's a marketing. Plan, that's right. That's well. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, that's there are so many of these things that go to the issues of our individual rights, whether it's at the global level of the Second Amendment, uh, search and seizure. I mean, we've talked about six or seven issues that really are fundamentally constitutional issues. That they start with the Constitution. We've talked about it before. They start with the Constitution, but where the rubber meets the road is where the actual local either state or local statute or ordinance comes into play, and it all has to be in the framework of the Constitution. So what we see here is there's still some uh, undefined area here between local cannabis laws, whether it's business or medicinal or recreational use, and federal laws related to search and seizure and 
you know, all of these things. So it's going to be, it's going to get interesting. That's good. So let's, uh, we still have time. Let's toss in minimum wage. Not oh, quite yeah, you as, did have a minimum wage Not issue. quite as sexy as some of these others. Uh, but 22 states in January uh, increased minimum wage. Uh, there, there's a variety of, of ways it's been approached. It's ranged. It's gone up to from $8.44 up towards $15 an hour in some states. Uh, minimum wage has always been a state issue. This is, this is why it's a, the, each state has to set their standards. Uh, there's not a, there, well, there is a federal minimum wage, but it only applies to federal agencies. And so, you know, this is, this is something that's really done on a state by state basis. I also think that despite the fact that you've got 22 states that have increased the minimum wage, Again, you have an administration that's come in saying that they are against minimum wage because they think it's an anti-business statute, that it drives up the cost. Oh, the mere, the mere setting of a minimum wage. The mere wage. setting of minimum wage. They believe in free economy, and you have a department, uh, a, a nominee for the U.S. Secretary of Labor from a fast food company who is clearly against the minimum that's wage. That's right. So uh, if, he's, if he's actually... Brought in as the Secretary of Labor, uh, just like the cannabis laws, I think there's going to be an interesting juxtaposition between pressure on the federal level on this issue and the direction that many of these states are going. So won't be the last we've heard about that either. And then I see, uh, Mitch, to round it out, um, Tennessee has a new regulation that allows breweries to make beer with an alcohol by volume of up to 10.1%. That's a pretty potent beer, isn't it? That is a potent beer. That sounds like some of them that you and I have post-show after we leave here. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's a very dark beer. It is. And in New York also got into the, the, the beer law adjustment so that now in... New York, if you're a craft beer connoisseur and you go to the bar to buy a drink, there's going to be a tax of one cent that will go back to the brewery that made the beer. So isn't that an interesting combination? So here's a tax that's being publicly taxed going back to a private Somebody company. likes the brewing industry. You'd think wow. in New York. Interesting. Talk about that. Okay. So, right. so that that's I find that that one's a bit of a head scratcher to me because we have very few. I'm trying to think. Can you think of any other tax in which the government collects the tax and then gives it back to a private industry? I guess. I don't think so. No. I'm stumped. Energy, maybe. I don't know. Gasoline, they collect it and use it. Mm-mm. No. I, nothing comes to my mind. So that that's an interesting one in New York. So 2017, clearly it's been a year of a lot of new laws. And there's probably some more that we can weave in, and we'll find a way to go back to track the Florida gun case. I think, Mitch, that's going to be on the canvas and compared to a lot of other tragic shootings, and we'll we'll see what else we can talk about. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess starting the year off, I think we're setting some of our agenda. We know that, that, you know, guns and gun rights are going to come up again. We know that cannabis is far from being done in the law. We think that minimum wage will be coming back up and... Uh, all, all of these kind of challenging issues. That's it's going right. to be a fun year, another good year for law. All right, I'll turn to you for the dismount. Well, as always, 
we remind you that you can listen to an archive of our show on voiceamerica.com, where we're on the business channel. You can also go to wagnerandwinnick.com. Please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Luis and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 